of the background. But after the greeting, there's no thanksgiving in this letter. Paul gets straight to it. And we're going to read what he says in verse 3. The title of the sermon is The Doctrine Driven Church. So, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. As I urged you, Paul writes to Timothy, when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. May God help us, having read his word, to understand it and apply it. Now, one thing this passage impresses upon us, unmistakably impresses, is the vital importance of doctrine. Doctrine matters. Certainly there is much more we could take out of this little section than that. But also there is nothing less that we should take from it. We should not overlook the very obvious focus that Paul has on doctrine. Some tell us today that what we believe is of little consequence, that it is something we should not stress over as Christians. But Paul clearly thought differently. On the record... And off the cuff, he spends most of this first chapter dealing with doctrine. He puts it foremost, he puts it forefront, he puts it to the center. In this letter, as he describes and discusses the nature of the church, he begins with doctrine. Now, it is not just, however, that Paul espouses the value of doctrine, per se, as if it's the believing itself that is important. No, Paul supposes that there are healthy doctrines and there are unhealthy doctrines. Paul believes that there are true doctrines and that there are false doctrines. Paul believes that there are doctrines which will drive our church in a profitable direction and that there are doctrines which will drive it to destruction. Indeed, we observe that Paul distinguishes between two discernible and very different bodies of truth. The first he calls sound 
doctrine, verse 10. And the second, he calls false or deviant doctrine. Two bodies of belief, and one or the other will be driving our church and any church. There is no third way in this. So, let's take the latter first, shall we? Paul spends most of his time on it. Deviant doctrine. And what should our attitude be to deviant doctrine? Well, we should defy deviant doctrine. We should defy deviant doctrine. Paul begins by saying to Timothy in verse 3, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus. Don't leave your post, Timothy. And here's the reason. So that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer. Not only does Paul defy deviant doctrine himself, but he calls upon Timothy, an ordinary Christian, mind you, to oppose false doctrine. It's quite a charge to Timothy, isn't it? Timothy is not to discuss the matter with these false teachers. Timothy is not to debate the issue. Timothy is not to discuss it in some kind of think tank. Timothy is to confront and to command these certain men not to teach false doctrine. Now, if we think about it, that in itself implies something. Because if Timothy has the jurisdiction to command these men, if Timothy somehow has the authority to tell these men to sit down and be quiet, then that would imply, would it not, that these men must have been members of the church. These were not outside uh, false teachers. They were those within the authority and framework of the church itself. This wasn't false teaching being cannonballed in. This was a Trojan horse. This was an insidious heresy. And Timothy has to go to men that he knows personally. Timothy has to go to presumably older men in the fellowship. Timothy has to go to men who were very possibly, for reasons I won't go into now, they were possibly elders within the church. And Timothy has to command their silence as a delegate of Paul's authority. Now, you know, if I were Timothy, and I've tried to imagine that a little this week, putting myself where he sits, A, I would be shaking in my sandals at this point, going to command these men. And B, I would want to be awfully sure that the men that I was going to be commanding to sit down and shut up were the right men. And so it's very thankful, I'm sure, from Timothy's point of view, that Paul very clearly outlines, he describes at length, some of the identifying marks of deviant teaching and deviant teachers. I want to suggest to you, as we boil it down, that there are two identifying marks of deviant doctrine, of false teaching. Here's the first most identifier. Deviant teaching, false teaching, differs. It differs. Now, I'm afraid this is partially disguised in the NIV translation. The NIV's rendering in verse 2 is false doctrine. The ESV translation translates this different doctrine. And I think that's a more literal rendering here. 
false doctrine, it really means to be dissimilar, to be unlike something else, to be different, to deviate from a norm. So you've got a norm, you've got a standard, and this is different teaching. In fact, you may even recognize, uh, you don't need to know biblical Greek to maybe know the word here, the word is heteros, from which we get the English word heresy. What is a heresy? A heresy is simply a different teaching. Now you say, uh, different to what? What is deviant doctrine deviant from? Well, I don't think uh, verse 3 spells this out clearly at this point, but in the epistle as a whole, it is very clear what the deviant teaching is deviant from. Listen closely to the answer. Heresy is any teaching which differs from the apostles' teaching. Heresy is any teaching which differs from the apostles' teaching and therefore from the New Testament teaching because the apostles wrote the New Testament. One of the great themes indeed of this letter and of 2 Timothy as well is of the importance of keeping the same sound gospel truths intact and then passing them on preserved to the next generation at the end of this chapter Paul urges Timothy that he should hold on to the faith on to faith verse 19 that's the apostolic teaching in chapter 6 Paul closes the letter it's virtually the last thing he says and he says to Timothy guard what has been entrusted to you in 2 Timothy 1 verse 13, what you have heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching. So there, there's a, a kind of teaching that has a pattern to it, and Timothy's to keep it. Paul goes on, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. And in 2 Timothy 2 verse 2, it's an easy one to remember, 2 Timothy 2 2, Paul says, and the things you have heard me say... That is Paul's teaching in the presence of many witnesses in trust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Do you see how concerned Paul is to preserve the same teaching of the apostles? It really does matter that we teach, wherever it is in our church, what the apostles taught. Yet false teaching differs. You hear it and you say, that's not New Testament. But not only does it differ, secondly, notice, false teaching distracts too. It distracts. As Paul puts it in verse 4, these promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. Now, you need to back up just a little bit uh, to understand what these controversial teachings were. Uh, we don't learn as much about this heresy as we would like, but Paul does lift the lid just a little in verse 3 of chapter 1. And it seems that the Ephesian heresy had something to do with what he calls myths and endless genealogies. Now, genealogies are much in vogue today, uh, people tracing their family bloodlines but back in the first century, many were into this too. And it wasn't just that they were interested in their own bloodlines, mind you, their own family tree. 
No, some people were especially invested in investigating biblical bloodlines. So they would open up uh, a book like Genesis, and they would pay particular attention to some of the long lists of names, you know, the screeds of fathers and sons and sons and their sons. And they would examine these very intently. These probably seem like the most boring parts of the Bible to you. They were the most interesting part for these guys. But of course, it had a little twist for them because they didn't just study what was there. We also find as well that they would conjure up all sorts of of speculative interpretation. Uh, They would allegorize certain names. They would find uh, spectacular links between uh, different names. Indeed, you can find some of these documents online. Uh, There's one called the Book of Jubilees, and it's full of these kind of fanciful myths, these fanciful interpretations. It seems that something like this was floating the boat of some within Ephesus. And what was worse here was not only that some believed this stuff, but they were actually teaching it within the context of the church. These men, verse 7, they they thought of themselves as teachers of the law. They They were sort of Christian rabbi alternatives. They wanted to be like the rabbis, except not Jewish, but Christian. And they would stand up on a Sunday in the church, presumably, and they would say, let's open your your Bible to the next genealogy in the series. And they would begin to go through the list of names, and they would come up with all sorts of novel and wonderful things. And no doubt some would be misty-eyed and think, wow, we've never seen that before. And there would be a reason why they'd never seen that before. And then there would be others who would think, what a load of nonsense. Or, Or maybe they would disagree with the fanciful interpretation, and they would have a different one. And so it is that Paul says that that these produced controversies within the church. As after the sermons, rather than praying for one another or applying the text together, they're actually arguing in the aisles. Silly stuff, isn't it? Although the teaching was ridiculous in itself, it was causing real contention within the church. These doctrines were bogging down the church. They were misting up the vision and they were muddling the mission. Controversy rather than God's work. God's work being that stewardship we have from God to take the good news to the nations. Yet while the church members should be telling their neighbors about Christ, neighbors who are heading to hell and a lost eternity, instead they're arguing over trifle. You know, who begat who? Who cares? Who cares when God's work has been neglected? Who cares who begat who in Esau's genealogy when the church has lost sight of her mission? You know, one of the sure signs of false teaching is this. It has a way of sidelining the gospel. It has a way of sidelining the mission of the church to tell the world about Jesus. It has a way of doing that. If I may pick on one example of false teaching, which is easy pickings, really, the prosperity gospel. One of the problems with the prosperity gospel is not only that it is is wrong, though it is wrong, it differs from the apostles' teaching who never said that you would be healthy, wealthy, and wise if you're a devout believer. But not only is it wrong, 
The problem is that the gospel gets dislodged from the primary place at the heart of the church. And so if you're a non-Christian and you come within the orbit of a church preaching the prosperity gospel, you believe that the only debt that is of any significance is the debt in your bank account. And you don't hear the real good news about Christ who can redeem you from the debt and the slavery of your sin. So false teaching, what have we said about it? Mark number one, it differs from the apostles' teaching. Mark number two, it distracts from God's word. Overall point, we should defy it. We should defy it. And we shouldn't be ashamed of that. Now, before pressing on, I, I feel I need to just add in a little word of caution here. Though you're, you're very sensible people, so you maybe don't need this anyway. But, but let's just not become heretic hunters incorporated because of this. And then blame Colin Adams and say, well, he you know, preached a sermon on that. You know, when we take issue with other Christians, particularly, and there may be times where we have to do that, let us make sure that most of the time it is issues where the gospel is at stake, where the gospel is at stake. You know, when Priscilla and Aquila uh, heard this young preacher, he had a lot of gift, Apollos, and he was telling people about Jesus, and they heard him preaching, and it wasn't quite gospel. He was kind of half there, but not the whole way. And so they took him aside privately. They didn't throw him out the church. They had a little word in his ear, and the Bible says that they taught him more adequately. And he went back out, and he began to preach the gospel in all of its fullness. And maybe more often that's the situation we will face as we're teaching alongside someone in the Sunday school, or in the fellowship group, or whatever it is in the church, and, and, and maybe sometimes we just listen to something and we say, that's not quite gospel. And we gently take them aside, and we ask them, where did you get that in the Bible? And then you discuss it together. There is a place for this defying deviant doctrine. Now, in this section, it's not just deviant doctrine equals bad, though mainly it is. Because Paul goes on to say some more things, some positive things, about another brand of doctrine. I think we would summarize, if we were applying this to ourselves in this way, we should embrace, we should embrace sound doctrine. We should embrace it. Deviant doctrine and sound doctrine are found side by side in this passage. And it shows up the contrast. You know, it's rather like one of those old washing powder adverts. Remember those? Where they put the name brand on one side of the screen, and then they put the nameless, pathetic brand on the other side of the screen, and they begin the wash, and there's never any competition, is there? The name brand always wonderfully washes the clothes. And so it is here that Paul sort of interweaves, he puts alongside deviant doctrine, the sound doctrine, and we see against the darkness of deviant doctrine something of the brightness of sound doctrine. And so why, why then, according to Paul, is sound doctrine such a wonderful thing? I mean, let's be honest. Sound doctrine, it sounds a little bit crusty, doesn't it? I mean, it's the sort of thing you imagine that you have to say with a furrowed, furrowed brow, you know, sound doctrine. A little stuffy. 
Actually, sound doctrine is one of the most exciting things. It's one of the most life-changing things. Let me show you why. A couple of reasons from Paul here. Number one, sound doctrine promotes spiritual health in the Christian and in the church. The word sound there is a medical term. And, And it means to be whole or to be healthy. And so what Paul is saying here is that there is a kind of doctrine that is inherently wholesome and good. It's healthy teaching. Guess what? Healthy teaching, regularly fed upon, makes for healthy Christians and for healthy churches. And incidentally, deviant doctrine makes you ill. You know, that would be the obvious implication. Then additionally, secondly, it promotes God's work. That's the second superior trait. And let's say too much upon this point, for it's just the opposite of something Paul has said before. Deviant doctrine distracts people from God's work, but sound doctrine promotes God's gospel work. You find me a church where the whole counsel of God is carefully taught and thoughtfully applied, and I'll find you a church that hasn't lost sight of its gospel priorities. You know, over the long haul, the most fervent evangelistic churches are also those who are most fervent in their study of the Scriptures. So sound doctrine promotes God's work. Sound doctrine produces spiritual health. Sound doctrine, thirdly, produces loving character. Loving character. Really, you say? Is that true? Sound doctrine is the most exciting thing. Because it transforms you and it transforms me to become more like Christ. It it changes loveless, selfish people into loving, servant-hearted people. Now notice what Paul says about this in verse 5. He says, the goal of this command is love. The command he is talking about is verse 4, not to teach false doctrine. And the goal of the command is love, is to produce loving behavior. Now, if you think about that, that means that deviant beliefs does not produce loving behavior. That's what Paul's saying. Deviant beliefs does not produce loving behavior. But if you ponder that, the opposite must also be true. Right? If deviant doctrine produces loveless behavior and loveless people, then sound doctrine produces loving people. Similarly, in verse 10, Paul says that unlawful behavior is contrary to sound doctrine. So again, sound doctrine must produce lawful behavior, right? And loving behavior, it it, it produces it in the life of the believer. Now that's a, a radical notion for some of us, isn't it? I used to think, I don't know who planted the silly notion in my mind, that theology had no impact on my life. I mean, how often do people tell you something like this? Doctrine, oh, that's purely academic. When are we going to get on to the practical teaching? That's patently bogus, that kind of contradiction that people set out. You know, if you think of Romans, as we did this morning, chapters 1 to 11 are all doctrine. 
And it's on the basis of that doctrine that Paul says, in view of all of these mercies, give your lives to God as living sacrifices. The doctrine is what motivates and impels the obedience. You find this in numerous other letters. Ephesians, chapters 1 to 3, doctrine. Chapters 4 to 6, on that basis, the duty. And Paul here establishes a firm connection. He says, what you believe affects how you behave. And sound doctrine produces loving behavior. But there's a third, uh, there's a fourth and final reason why sound doctrine excels. Paul also adds that it properly uses God's law. Sound doctrine properly uses God's law. Now, one of the facts about the false teachers, remember, was they wanted to be teachers of the law. Uh, The trouble was they weren't very good at it. With their fanciful genealogies, with their far-fetched interpretations. And Paul, in the blunt style that sometimes pertains to him, he says they want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Well, say it straight, Paul. You ever met the kind of person who thinks they know lots but actually knows little? These were the guys. Law experts, Snickers Paul, they haven't got the foggiest clue. Now it's true, he concedes, that the law is good if one uses it properly. So Paul is not being down in the law. He's not saying the law itself is the problem, that they're teaching the law. Wonderful. But these guys aren't using the law properly. You see, the law is made, here's the purpose, verse 9. The law is made not for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. That's really why the law exists. It exists for lawbreakers. You know, the reason they invent new laws is because people find new new ways to break the law. They start doing something wrong and people create a law. If people didn't break the law, if people didn't sin, if people didn't cheat, if people didn't... Murder, they wouldn't need the laws in place, would they? That's Paul's point. And Paul indeed gives a list of such lawbreakers. So does your newspaper on a Monday morning, packed full of stories of people in court for this crime and that crime. And therefore, the law exists not for proud men and their speculations. That's what Paul's getting at. The law exists for sinners to prove their condemnation. That's why the law exists. Now, if you're a thinking person, you probably say, well, that's bad news, isn't it? If that's the proper use of the law. For lawbreakers to show us that we've broken God's holy law, God's high standards. And in one sense, it is bad news, but, you know, it's actually a blessing in disguise that the law does that. And those of us who are Christians know that, because it happened in many of our experiences too, that the law serves as a wonderful preparation for the gospel. The law serves the gospel in that it it makes people aware of their condemnation and their sin. It softens people's hearts and it opens people's hands to receive the good news. Before you tell someone about Jesus, first of all, tell them about the Ten Commandments. Take them through the ten laws and ask them whether they've kept the ten laws. And then they'll be ready, if they're an honest person, to hear about the gospel. A great illustration is given by the evangelist Ray Comfort. He says, imagine you're sitting on an airplane. 
It's a normal flight like any other, but suddenly the steward comes up and he's got a parachute for you. And he says, strap that on your back. You put it on your back. This has never happened to you before, by the way, on a plane. And uh, it's heaving, it's big, it's uncomfortable. And what's more, he hasn't even told you why you need to wear it. Well, after a couple of minutes, you, you get very uncomfortable. And the passengers are staring at you. I mean, talk about extra hand luggage. Uh, and so you take the jolly thing off. Well, the steward sees. He rushes back to your seat. He says, you need to put that parachute back on. And this time, he whispers in your ear a fact he had neglected to mention. He says, because the plane is going to crash. They only have a few parachutes, so they're keeping it pretty low key. And suddenly, suddenly the man realizes that the parachutes was going to save his life. You know, the law, God's law, is what tells us, it's what whispers in our ear that the plane's going to crash. As we look at our lives, you know, many people, they're flying along, and they're enjoying the drinks, and they're enjoying the comfort, and they think everything's going well, and they don't realize that the plane's going down. They're plummeting to a lost eternity without God. And the law of God comes along, and it says you need to wear a parachute. You need to be saved, and this is the only thing that's going to save you. And then we present to people the wonderful good news that Jesus has died on the cross to save us from our sins and that he can save us from plummeting to disaster. The good news makes sense only in light of the bad news. The law conveys the bad news and the gospel brings the good news. And so sound doctrine is a wonderful final superior element. It's compatible with the law and it properly uses the law. So it produces loving behavior, it promotes God's work, and it produces spiritual health. Why on earth would you want anything less than sound doctrine to be the thing that you imbibe on a daily basis? Beloved, let's read our Bibles regularly. There's no shortcut to knowing the apostles' teaching than reading it. Keep going with those Bible reading plans. Additionally, meditate on what you read. Think about what you're studying. Think about not only what is being said, but what it means. So that you can know when someone's pulling a fast one on you, as they quote out of context some verse or other. One book beyond the scripture that is worth being on every Christian's bookshelf is Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. It's a book well worth reading, reading slowly, and maybe reading with someone else as it overviews all of the main doctrines of the Bible. And let's remember that we're not simply to be our own resident theologians. We're rather to come into the great lecture theater of the apostles and to sit under the greatest theologians of history. C.S. Lewis said, and I leave you with this, he said, if you do not listen to theology... That will not mean you have no ideas about God. It will mean you have a whole lot of wrong ones. That's really something to ponder tonight, isn't it? Let's pray together.